Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Overcoming Mental Health Challenges podcast. My name is Evan Transu, aka Mr. Health Coach Ev. I am a speaker in the mental health space as well as a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner who is obsessed with talking about everything mental health and just learning about how different people have overcome the various challenges that they have endured. So we are back tonight with another interview. I love these types of interviews because I have not heard this story before. So it's one of those things where it's super authentic. You know, we're really just having a real conversation uh, between two human beings. So tonight we have with us Jenna Malley. So Jenna, thank you so much for hopping on with us. Yeah, no problem. Cool. So we always start this podcast with the exact same question. And I just do this because I think it helps paint a really good picture in people's minds that these things can start at any age or, you know, they can be really intense when we're young or maybe not existing when we're young. It really does not discriminate. But my question that I like to start off with is what was Jenna like as a kid? So when I say kid, I mean, maybe, you know, that five to 10, 11, 12 year old range. What was going on during that time of your life? Oh, gosh, I was a totally nervous rack of a kid. It was pretty clear by the time I was three years old that I had anxiety, actually. Uh, okay. That's when my father was diagnosed with a long-term illness. Um, he actually passed away when I was eight years old. So my childhood was a bit um, flaky, but therapy was never um, a taboo topic either. We actually started therapy when I was three years old, as well as a family and as individuals. I'm a twin. So it was um, an interesting childhood, to say the least. Okay, wow. So what was going on at three? So three years old, obviously, if you're going to a therapist, like people were recognizing this as something's actually going on. I mean, was this in the form of like, more anxiety attacks or just generalized anxiety? Like what were you experiencing at three? It was a combination of anxiety attacks and generalized anxiety. A lot of it had to do with um, my father getting sick. Um, he had Lewy body dementia, which is a combination of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So I didn't really notice as a three-year-old, I mean, the Parkinson's that much. But as he got older, um, he was forgetting a lot of things. And later on throughout his disease, he forgot my sister and my name. And he forgot that we were his kids. So it was things like that. Um that a small child can't really process was what prompted us to go to therapy. But it was also, I guess, um, I chicken and the egg kind of thing. It was also what led to a lot of the anxiety that I dealt with and the depression that my sister dealt with was, are, are people going to forget who we are? Is this going to happen to other family members? And eventually when he passed, uh, my one of my larger fears was of, death and people I loved dying and disappearing because it had already happened and I didn't fathom quite yet how it could have come about. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's very rare that I hear someone, um, you know, at that age dealing with that type of stuff, but I totally get it. If you had, you know, especially the circumstance going on and it's, again, it's weird to hear that because I was someone, I started dealing with panic attacks, not often, um, but infrequently at like five and a half years old. And like, for me, no one even really thought that this is actually what you could be dealing with um, that young. Like no one really was able to recognize that. So I guess, um, I mean, that's a crazy kind of terrible thing to happen because I'm guessing, I mean, if I can ask it, your dad was probably relatively young, right? Um, not really, actually. When he passed, he was 72. Uh, he was on the older side. Okay. So it was a 
it was a bit of a different uh, type of relationship, I guess. He was, interestingly enough, the same age as my grandpa. But, you know, love is a love. Got it. Fair enough. So what kind of happened then? Because I know for a lot of people um, that hop on, usually that five to ten year old range is it doesn't happen always with the interviews I do. But a lot of the times that's kind of clean and like nothing was really going on then. So if this was happening already in this three to eight year old range, I mean, what did the you know teenage years kind of look like? Like what did post eight um, years old look like for you? <laughs> so I'm glad you asked because pretty much the same until honestly, I um, got real treatment when I went to uh, college because before that I wasn't really interested in treatment. Um, I stopped therapy probably when I was 10 years old because uh, I'm like 98% sure the therapist asked me to leave because she kept trying to give me medication. And as a kid, I wasn't really sure why she was giving me medication. Um, And I was used to, you know, I mean, I'd been going to therapy since I was three years old. I was used to her giving me coloring books and M&Ms. And I looked at the white pills in my hand and I was like, these are not M&Ms. And she's like, just take them. And I tried. um, And then I spit them back at her. (laughs) So I'm pretty sure I was asked to leave. But uh, my mom says it's just that I refuse to go. So we'll we'll never know whose story is real. Um, But yeah, it was a lot of the same dealing with um, anxiety, just constant cycle of I'm having a panic attack. There's this irrational reason that I'm having a panic attack. And then me refocusing that a lot, um, largely on school and perfectionism. So that's sort of how my anxiety manifested itself. When I had an intrusive thought, I would focus on school because that was easier for me to deal with. And it was easier for me to rationalize versus like, somebody is going to pass away or like this person that showed up late obviously got into a car accident because that would be my first intrusive thought. Wow. Okay. So this became a thing where like you're one of the main fears at least was that you're worried about other people in your life also just passing away, even if there was no reason to believe that at that time. Yeah. For quite a while, um, at least for a lot of my teenage years, that was more of my fear. I mean, it kind of got less, gruesome and sort of just grew into more of um, a generalized anxiety because I was such uh, a worry wart I guess is the best way to say it because I was constantly I felt like in this state of like survival mode almost yeah okay got it and I'd love to well I shouldn't say I don't know if love's the right word Um, I'd like to touch more on that kind of perfectionism that you mentioned because really I, I feel like there's almost never an in the middle with this I feel like people dealing with you know, severe anxiety or severe depression or really any other uh, mental health issue during the school years, it really goes one of two ways. Either they are completely messing up school or they do. They have that other tendency and it's perfectionistic tendencies and they're doing really well in school. So did other people, were they able to tell that things were going on did you share that with them or did they just think jenna's like this really hardworking, good student like what was the perception um the classmates and the reason i bring this up is because i know a lot of people listening to the podcast sometimes have never really been through this stuff directly but they're looking for help maybe for another person um so i think it'd be really interesting to just talk about what was the perception of um you know do you think at least of your classmates and then what could they have maybe done to read between the lines that hey i'm actually someone who's struggling so I was the perfect student type. I was the constantly studying, constantly getting A's, uh, president of whatever club, 
like staying late at whatever club kind of thing um always like studying but also you know trying to be that perfect friend as well I didn't want to cancel plans either um really I hit it I wore um a very good mask okay got it so Obviously, we don't want to create um, a notion that everyone that does well in school uh, <laughs> is dealing with this type of stuff. Obviously, no. there are some people that just they, they enjoy that stuff or they're hard workers, whatever. No, is there... I think there, there were definitely signs in that. I think, um, for example, from second grade until uh, my freshman year of college, I didn't miss a minute of class. Like I had perfect attendance for 10 years. That wow. is a sign that's like showing something that like, because most kids will be like, mm, like I, I have a headache. I'm gonna stay home. Where I was, where I was like, if we don't get out of the house right now, and like we're a minute late, I was, uh, freaking out. I mean, full blown, like yelling at my mom and sister. I couldn't deal with the thought of being late to school, because that was like now my distraction. Yeah. And like being at school is sort of my, um, not necessarily safe place, but. I mean, it was my, my place where I didn't really have to worry or think about anything else aside from school and, like, what was directly happening in front of me. So that helped a lot being at school. But in the same regard, I mean, I took it far too seriously. Um, and then with tests and exams and projects, I mean, the second something was assigned and they're like, all right, this is due in two months, like, two days later, I'd have it done sort of thing. It was – and again, wow. not that that is necessarily um, always a warning sign – but I think there might be something to be said for perfectionism manifesting itself in a way that um, is was is pretty much like killing me. Like I refused if I didn't like had to stay up late the night before, like finishing a project and was exhausted at school or something. And the project wasn't even due for two months. Like it was just a cycle that was really not going well. Wow. OK. And yeah, no, of course. But I appreciate what you just said, because I think that made it clear like, it's not just doing well in school. I mean, the fact that I don't think I've ever met anyone, um, or at least I don't know that I've met anyone who did not miss a day for 10 years. Oh, I feel like... Even my principal made fun of me at graduation and, like, at the senior awards banquet and all that. He was like, and here, cheers to the only student that has ever attended school more than I have. <laughs> I mean, yeah, seriously, but you were talking about the headache thing. I mean, like, yeah, that was an excuse that most of us use once a month, let alone you know, once a year or something like that. I mean, I can't even imagine um, how much extra I would have went to school if I had, you know, attended every single day for the 10 years. So were you, I mean, you said that the therapy was done at 10 years old. So was there anything really being done to help you deal with these things that you were dealing with in middle and high school or was nothing really going on at that time? Um, I mean, I was definitely suffering from anxiety at that time, but I was, not really there to cop for it, to be honest. Um, I was too focused on everything else and trying to convince myself that everything was perfectly normal and this is how every teenager felt. Um, this is how every student dealt with things, uh, even though clearly that wasn't true because I had seen people turn in projects late and miss school and all that. And I was like, oh, that's just because they're lazy or that's just because they're this or that. And even if they were like the valedictorian, for example, um, I was just like, oh, like, they just had a bad day. Like, that's why they, you know, missed that test or whatever. Um, I mean, I just rationalized everything to the point where I convinced myself that it was fine, that this anxiety was fine and it was healthy anxiety and not disruptive 
abnormal anxiety. Okay. Wow. So when you were in middle and high school, was it primarily these, because obviously even for the, well, I shouldn't say obviously because some people that are listening might not know this, the stuff that you're talking about with the perfectionism. I mean, that's like classic anxious type symptoms because a lot of the times and I can totally relate um, anxiety can look like us trying to control everything in our lives. Um, And I think that's something I don't consider myself an anxious person now, thankfully, but I still have some of those tendencies. Like they've like lingered over. So I'm always like a little conscious now, like, Hey man, like, you know, you can't control everything in life. You're not supposed to control everything in life. And obviously it's only perceived control anyway. Like we really don't have that much at the end of the day as, you know, human beings. So was there anything else that you would say either like either you thought or actually diagnosed going on, or was it just kind of this stuff with the panic attacks and the anxious um, behaviors? Um, As it got closer to later in high school, closer to college time, uh, I started to develop depression as well. Um, Just because um, I mean, that's sort of what happens with untreated anxiety eventually, usually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. but other than that, I mean, like, I just hit it. Got it. Okay. So obviously it seems like I'm guessing something in maybe like the later high school and college years is what kind of shifted things around. Um, and obviously I don't know your story. So maybe it wasn't this specific moment or maybe you didn't have a specific moment like this, but I always ask everyone, like, what was the time? where you said, because I'm guessing it was obviously not the stuff at 10 years old, something between then and now has happened to get you to where you are and get you to be um, a speaker on this topic. Like what was the situation or maybe series of events or serious situations that kind of happened to lead you to once again, be getting help and being like, okay, this is kind of a problem. Um, And I know that's a loaded question. I mean, obviously we have time. You can feel free to answer that in any way you'd like. Yeah, so when I was picking a college um, on May 1st, everyone knows it's decision day for colleges, and I was the only one that showed up to my high school not wearing my college apparel because I hadn't actually picked a college yet. Um, I was really indecisive as well. That was another way that my anxiety had manifested itself. And in this case, my indecision sort of sprang from the fact that I knew I could not make the perfect decision on college, that there was no way I was going to please, you know, my cousin, my sister that wanted me to go to school near her, my mom that wanted me to stay closer to her in New Jersey, uh, like my friends that wanted me to go to school near them and me wanting to find a good program to study chemistry. And I was very all over the place with what to study. Um, or sorry, not what to study about where to study because I had applied to 13 schools and I'd gotten into all 13 schools and I'm acknowledging to like most people that sounds like the dream. Like, how did you not get rejected? Are you stupid? Like, why were you upset about that? And for me, that was just like super overwhelming because I applied to that many schools because I didn't think I would get into that many schools because I, as much as I wanted to, and as much as I like practice to an horrifying extent, I never saw myself as the person that I think a lot of other people saw me as. And a lot of um, people were rather judgmental over the fact that I'd applied to 13 schools. And now here I was not being able to make a decision because I had intentionally overwhelmed myself, I guess. So I spent most of May 1st um, 
in the guidance counselor's office or with one of my friends in the bathroom just hysterically crying because I had no idea what to do. And that was probably like one of my like worst moments in high school, I guess. And sort of, I think what made my mom and uh, a few of my friends more aware of how much I had pushed myself and how stressed out I was about it to maybe an unhealthy extent. I think that's might've, might've been where a lot of them started to pick up on it. Um, and eventually my best friend Kennedy, she called me and it must've been 9 PM on May 1st. And I was like still hysterically crying to the point where my guidance counselor had actually, that was for her first day back from maternity leave. Um, and she mocked and said that I cried more than her. Um, and my friend Kennedy calls at 9 PM and goes, okay, so where are you going to school? And I was still freaking out and I didn't know. And she was like, well, I made cupcakes because I had made her cupcakes and in the colors of her school, uh, and she's like, and I want to decorate them and I have all the food coloring here, but I don't know what color to dye the icing. And I was like, I don't know, just make it black because I have no idea where I'm going at this point. She was like, so pick one out of a jam hat is literally what she said. And I know she was kidding and clearly like anyone would have laughed at that and maybe calmed down enough and gone through the 1200 pros and cons charts that they made. And instead I actually tried that, that approach, uh, my school out of a hat. And that's how I ended up, um, at my university. So when I got there, I just assumed that me being miserable at school and not wanting to go out and still maintaining my perfectionist rituals was just because I had made a mistake and I picked my school up. And I talked to Kennedy a lot while I was in school. We went to different colleges, um, but we were always like texting or on the phone or Skyping or something while we were sitting in our dorms doing homework. And she was studying psychology at the time. She was taking a psych class and I was uh, taking um, an organic chemistry class and we were studying together one night and she was reading out loud definitions because she was practicing for a test that she had the next day. And she got to the definitions of anxiety and depression. And I mean, obviously I knew what those definitions were um, and I knew what those symptoms were, anxiety, I mean, being that you are anxious about something and depression being that you're upset about something. But what I guess struck me was the definitions for both of them included interferes with daily life. And Kennedy and I were just a bit like silent when I pointed that out because both of us felt, both of us felt like we weren't able to, interact with our peers at school in a way that we would like to both of us were kind of um hiding in our dorms a lot after going to class um dealing with a lot of anxiety about not just school but being so far from home now um and wanting to still please people she had a very similar personality to me in high school as well um and then with the depression both of us were just very like down we didn't want to make plans with people and when we did I mean when we would go to or when we were invited to college parties we would get ready with our friends you know put on that little outfit whatever else and then they'd say all right let's go and we're like all right we're just gonna go to the bathroom we'll meet you and then we'd go back to our dorms and put on pajamas like we just didn't 
we couldn't it wasn't that we necessarily didn't always it was that we felt like we just couldn't do it right and clearly that was interfering with our everyday life so both of us agreed that we would make appointments with our college counselors and within a week of each other we managed to get appointments and then with a month of each other um we were both diagnosed with anxiety and depression wow okay i don't think this is um a really unique story in a lot of ways i don't think i've ever talked to someone yet and i've talked to a lot of people just being in this space myself that had this kind of situation where a friend in them are recognizing these things at the at the same time um that's just it, that's a really interesting scenario and i almost i mean i don't know what you believe in um i've come to certain beliefs myself in you know the past several years and i almost feel like that just seems like it was like kind of meant to happen like you guys are reading this to each other basically oh it was on the phone you said correct mm-hmm. yeah and then you kind of have that moment where you're like okay wow um that that's kind of i've just again i've never really heard that so was that what happened i guess after you started working with the counselor were it was that like really the beginning of you know truly a new path or were there ups and downs with that like how did that new process um start so when we first started i mean it was great we were both throughout freshman year going to counselor to start we both started good medication regimes i found somebody off campus that i clicked with because my university didn't offer long-term counseling um hers thankfully did because uh, she didn't have as many options for getting off campus I went to school in Boston Massachusetts so it was pretty easy to leave the campus using the transportation um and I mean by the end of freshman year it it wasn't really like there were any ups and downs it felt like we were both discussing um our treatment plans we were both very open with each other we were not as open with other people But the nice part, I guess, was at the end of freshman year, we were happy with ourselves when we didn't have straight A's. Like, we weren't as stressed out about it when we got a B on an exam or even a C on an exam. And we were happy with ourselves for actually being able to leave the dorm and not just hide in the bathroom or the dorm room and actually going to parties and stuff like that, Uh, which would not have been the case, I think, if we hadn't started doing treatment. Um, And it was also nice that I mean even at even though at that time I didn't feel necessarily comfortable discussing it with anybody else and she was the same way we didn't really share with anybody um what was going on um we pretty much just kept it to ourselves um and I mean that part I now acknowledge to be sort of uh because I think it would have been a lot easier to make friends freshman year that I actually would have still been closer with. Um, But I guess I'll get into that now. Um, Sure. So after freshman year, we went home. I kind of did. I saw each other. It was great. I mean, we got to see all of our friends from home and it was, um, I mean, it was amazing to be able to share stories and have actual college stories that weren't just like, I sat in my room and studied and that like, that being it we were able to talk about you know like parties we went to and friends we actually made and things we did that we actually enjoyed um but I guess what I um neglected to realize was that Kennedy wasn't telling me her full truth um and two weeks before the um sophomore term would have started for me and a week before it would have started for her she died by suicide 
Oh my god. So that is sort of when my own story went a bit off kilter, off topic. I don't know how to phrase that. I still, I am still working on that, even in my minding your mind talk, because I always get a little choked up at this part. But um, I went back to school. I have no idea how I got back to school like those two weeks later because I hadn't packed I don't know who packed for me I don't know like how I moved into my dorm I don't really have any memories from the first like month of that term because it was like very much survival mode more than I had ever experienced in my entire life and finally like as I started to come out of that fog I guess what I realized was that Kennedy would not have wanted me to just do that and just live like a complete zombie who I showered when I physically felt able to get out of bed. Um, I was still going to class, but that was it. Um, I didn't really see any of my friends from freshman year anymore. They all knew what had happened, but none of them were really supportive about it, um, which is kind of, I guess, why I regretted not saying anything to them because it would have been nice to have like those real friends freshman year and not friends that were um what it turned out to be was very fake um and eventually I realized that I had to do something else and I talked to my therapist and I was like well I'm on medication I'm I'm seeing you like what do I do um and she recommended going to Samaritans and Samaritans is a group up in Massachusetts they have a, a lot of other branches as well, but I'm not as familiar with them. And they work with people that have lost people to suicide. They also have a hotline that you can call into. They have a crisis line for texts and calls. That is great as well. Um, but I ended up attending one of their groups in downtown Boston for specifically people that have lost people to suicide. And I was super terrified because, I mean, I was a sophomore in college I didn't know what I was going to find at 7 p.m. in a strange place in the middle of downtown Boston like I wasn't expecting all that much to be perfectly honest but then I walked in and there were these people that the second I shared my name I felt like they were accepting and the second I told them about Kennedy before I even shared anything about her they were like I mean what they wanted to know her not just about how I lost her but they wanted to know her And to me, that was extremely important because, frankly, I was struggling to figure out how to keep this 19-year-old's memory alive. And that was so important to me. And going to that group was sort of what started to bring me out of my shell and out of that fog. Because now, every other week, I had this place that I could go to in addition to therapy where I could talk to these people of, I mean, all different walks of life I met parents that had lost their only child, um, daughters that had lost their parents, brothers that had lost sisters, uh, people that had lost aunts, uncles, cousins, other people that had lost best friends. It was humbling, to say the least, to hear everybody's stories and then to see these people and be like, well, they're still capable of getting out of bed. They're still capable of like eating cereal in the morning and going to work and living their lives. And that, I think, is what really helped me the most. Uh, more than anything else at that time that I could have imagined because meeting people that were in the exact same boat as I was and knew exactly what I was going through because I think suicide grief is very different than any other type of grief 
because there's that that intermingled guilt could I have done something where what was I missing how did I like how did I let this happen sort of thing sure and having those people that were so willing to listen um was incredible wow okay so I mean this is uh, (laughs) you've been through a lot I guess is what I'm trying to (laughs) say how the heck do you come around and turn this into doing something where I mean it's one thing to overcome going through stuff like this what is it that drives you to not only overcome these extremely I mean just plain unfair um things that you've dealt with in your life but then go out and help other people with that like I want to know the mindset behind that like what makes you be able and want to go do something like that for others oh gosh so to be perfectly honest I guess there's another um minor sob story involved in that question um so about five months not even maybe about five months after um my best friend had passed away I was sexually assaulted and it turned out that the guy had also been stalking me as well for about eight months and um after that experience, I sort of once again fell like back into my fog, my black hole, my I'm only going to eat cereal and Triscuits as meals now mm-hmm. lifestyle. Um, I At that point, I even stopped taking my medication and I, I actually took off a semester my junior year of college instead of going back because I was um, <laughs> I was going to class and I was sitting there. And I was waiting for the teacher to walk in. And every time the door opened, I panicked uh, because I thought it would be the guy that had assaulted me walking through the door. And I'd reported it. It was on file with the campus police. Um, But they had told me at the time that um, if I tried to pursue anything about it, uh, nothing would happen unless I went to a court system and not through the university. And yeah, I've heard, I'm sorry, not to cut you off because this is a separate topic, but it's, I've heard some unbelievably unfair and just flat out wrong um, ways of the way some schools have dealt with those types of incidents. So yeah, yeah that's totally ridiculous. The, so the treatment sort of, I guess that I feared if I went to um, Boston police and told them what had happened and then ended up going through the court system and I had just dealt with already in that, I mean, between losing my friend I also found out that I had never met my biological father um so the father that passed away um it turns out I was from a sperm donor I found that out and then uh two weeks before I was assaulted um I lost my grandpa who I had always considered like a father figure because him and my father that I thought was my father were the same age so by the time all this was happening my uh capacity to process a lot was not real it wasn't there um I wanted it to just be over with I filed the report because I wanted there to be documentation and because when I shared it shared the story with um with one of my friends when he um left the room um my friend was like you need to get this on file you can't just it's not one of those things you can ignore and it'll go away but I kind of I guess after hearing what the police had said couldn't deal with anything because it felt like one more person just being like no we can't support you like no we're not going to be your friend um so when my junior year started I tried to go to class couldn't 
get through the first five minutes without crying because I couldn't handle the idea of him walking through the door and what if we were in the same class and all these thoughts. And I ended up going back to my dorm room and sitting on the floor and crying. And I remembered what somebody had said in my Samaritan's group, which at the time I thought, I guess, was a little degrading because I thought he was sort of just talking down to me because he had experience and he was much older. Um, But what he said was, if you keep questioning why you lost your best friend, if you ever understand the answer to that question, you're in the exact same place that she was. And it's a very dangerous place to be. And I finally felt like I understood how Kennedy could have um, been in that mindset and could have felt like her passing was the only way for her to continue on with her own self and why she did exactly what she did. And for me, I knew that wasn't okay because I had heard that man in Samaritan say that and finally I had understood he wasn't being rude or trying to just get me to stop asking and wondering. He was genuinely giving me a warning. And at that point, I picked up the phone and called my mom, and she didn't know some of what had been going on. She knew bits and pieces. Um, But thankfully, um, she was very supportive. She didn't ask that many questions. She dropped everything she was doing, um, and her and a friend of hers came and picked me up from school. Wow. Okay. So... (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I, I guess continuing that story to fully answer your question. Um, When I came back to school um, after like, I was not in inpatient treatment. I was just seeing like a lot of different doctors getting a better medication regime, whatever else. Um, I felt a lot more empowered, I guess, because I had taken that time off and really like refocused my priorities and what I wanted to be doing and made sure that I was actually focusing on myself and not just what I thought I should be doing, if that makes sense. Right. And um, I ended up having a case against the guy that had assaulted me. And after that, I like completely felt like I had was on top of the world because I won against him on all charges. He was suspended. Oh, my God. Yeah. Thank. I was like, please. Because again, guys, remember, I don't know these stories from a lot of speakers yet. And I know that the stats are not good on that when it happens at colleges. I mean, again, it's just so messed up. Thank God. I was yeah. like, please let China win the damn thing. I, I, I mean, I was just as relieved. Um, I mean, he was suspended. He should have been expelled, but he was just suspended. The new policy now, thankfully, I, because I worked with the group on campus, is that anyone found responsible for sexual assault is expelled. But minor, uh, minor victory, a little bit too late, I guess. But at least he was found responsible for his actions and they'll be on his transcript forever because um, that's the only thing that doesn't get expelled from your transcript is when you're suspended for sexual assault or expelled for sexual assault. Um, So that made me feel really great. And then um, knowing that I sort of had the courage to do that and that I'd started also sharing with people why I took that semester off. um, And instead of lying about it, like I had when I was off and saying, oh, I got like a really great internship experience. And I just like couldn't turn it down, which was my total lie Mm -hmm. to a lot of people. Um, I finally just started being honest and like said, like I was dealing with a lot in my own personal life and it led to a mental health crisis. And it was either stay at school and suffer and potentially not make it through or 
deal with it. And I finally chose to deal with it. And I found that a lot of people when I shared that weren't judging me anymore. It wasn't like, I guess, those people that I had been quote unquote friends with my freshman year, they were people that were now sharing their own experience with me or trying to actually find out about how I got help because they knew somebody who knew somebody that was also looking for help. And that experience in itself was something that motivated myself and my friend um, Jackie to start a campaign in memory of Kennedy. Um, It was almost her birthday at the time. So we wanted to have like shirts or something that we could wear that would allow us um, and maybe some of her family and some of her friends to feel mildly uh, connected on the day of that should have been super happy but of course all of us were going to be sad anyway and we came up with this idea to print amazing backwards on t-shirts and we just sold them online to like her friends and family like we sent them all the link um and we didn't really like expect to like do anything else with it um I mean, keep in mind, like, I'm a chemist, not, like, a marketing major, like, like a printer, (laughs) web service provider, whatever. Um, And we woke up on the second day of this campaign, and we had messages from people as far as Australia and purchases from people as far as, uh, like, China buying these shirts. Um, We had sold over 400 shirts in the 48 hours and raised... Whoa, yeah, whoa. and we raised like almost five thousand um, dollars for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and it was like not even—I mean, our little our marketing, if you can call it that, was just posting the link on our Facebook pages and then sharing it with our friends and family, just saying like, if you want to support the AFSP or if you want to um, have a way to remember Kennedy, here is your opportunity. And what we heard, I guess from reading the messages on this campaign is that a lot of people were looking for an outlet to talk about their mental health without kind of just going up to somebody and being like, I'm suffering from mental health. What's your name? How are you doing today? Because that's clearly like not how you can start a conversation. But now these people had this shirt that said amazing backwards. And the concept behind that was twofold. One was because we, and everybody in Kennedy's life had constantly told her she was amazing and she never she never saw it in herself. And we liked the idea that you could look into a mirror and see it and read it yourself. Oh, okay. I was, I wasn't going to ask. I figured you had an explanation. For <laughs> yeah. that. I didn't really get the amazing backwards thing. That's awesome. Okay. That's really Yeah. Cool. So the concept is that like, you're the one that really needs to see it. It doesn't matter how many times other people tell you. I mean, obviously it's a nice thing, but um yeah we wanted people to really just if they felt like crap when they woke up one day be able to put on that shirt and be like all right like I can get through this day and the I guess the second fold of that was we wanted um people to have this opportunity to talk about mental health when somebody asked about the shirt um like why is amazing backwards did your shirt Mm -hmm. is backwards um and if they didn't feel like talking about it, if they were genuinely having a crappy day and just, like, couldn't have the conversation, they could just say, oh, it's, like, a selfie thing, which I actually learned from one of the high schoolers when I was doing a talk. Um, she was like, do people ever say that? Like, do people ever just say it's a selfie thing when they can't talk about it? And I was like, no, but that's genius. <laughs> yep. Okay, I'd like to ask a few more questions here. And one of those is, 
because you're someone who has obviously done in a lot of real healing. Like you've actually done the work. And I know this because you've been through hell and back and you're still coming out on top, serving others, doing great things. I mean, that is much easier said than done. So I like to hear messages from people who have actually done the work of healing because it is not easy. What is a message or a sentence or a paragraph or whatever that you would say to someone maybe in the same shoes that you were at one time or even your old self? What's a message you would give them? Oh, gosh. Um, I guess there's absolutely no shame in asking for help and in getting help. Um, there are, I mean, volunteers that want to help people suffering with a mental health crisis. I mean, look at the crisis text line, the national hotline, even Samaritans. They're all volunteers. and They don't want to help these strangers that have gone through or going through tough times in their lives. And they're just doing that because they care. So even if you feel like there's no one in your life that you can talk to, no one in your life that cares, first off, not to be rude, but you're wrong. There is somebody that cares whether you've met them or not. And that recovery and starting the process toward getting help looks completely different for everybody. And it is certainly not linear. Therapy isn't always the best option for everyone. Medication just isn't, is not always the best option for everybody. I mean, for example, I have an emotional support animal. Um, and that's been actually one of the greatest things for me. But I, it's not something that I would recommend to, like, everybody. Um, I mean, I've had my ups and downs, but I wish that I had started trying to get help a lot earlier than I did. And I wish that I realized that when I talked about it, people would care and that the people that didn't care weren't the people I wanted to associate with anyway. That's yeah. Perfect. That's really well said. And I can relate to that. And I think a lot of us can, um, but I can relate to it in the sense of what you just said is, you know, (laughs) and yeah, it's not a rude thing, but like you are wrong because what mental health issues can do to us sometimes, I think it creates such negative self-talk that we really, like, I did believe that I was alone in this battle. And I'm sure you believe that at one point too, you know, it's just, you know, Evan versus the world, Jenna versus the world. And the truth is I had a great support network around me at all times, to be honest, but it wasn't their fault. And it wasn't my fault. It was the mental health issues fault. And it made me not really be able to see that. Um, And I think that's a really powerful message to those listening is we got to understand that sometimes, you know, this stuff can cloud our thinking and please, you got to see through those clouds just long enough to realize, okay, there definitely is something we can do. And um, we can kind of start this, you know, path of, um, you know, recovering and changing things around. And I think that's a great message too, for people because to hear you now, you know, be able to talk about this and share this with other people. It's really hard for me to describe sometimes when I see someone that's struggling or, and not even just with speaking, just in, you know, life in general, when they're struggling and they're really in a bad place. And all I want to do is tell them, I promise, I promise, I promise it's going to get better. But that's like a really hard thing to say to someone um, when they're in that state. And I think just knowing that there's, I'll put it this way. I think we are at the most susceptible chance of, you know, doing something that's irreversible um, when we have no hope because there are people in life and I'm not lessening my own pain, but there are people in life, prisoners of war, things like that, who have been through 10 times worse pain than I think I have been through. 
and just me personally, and they still made it. And I'm like, how did they end up doing that? And I realized that those types of people, they had one thing. They had hope. Um, you know, they believed that their fellow army men or women are coming to rescue them or whatever. And sometimes mental health issues, at least in my experience, it clouded that and it made it seem like, okay, this is never going away or, or nothing's ever going to change. And really, as unfortunate as it is, I think we need to take that first 5% responsibility. It's not our fault but responsibility for the healing process and things like that. So that's great. Um, and then my last like two curveball kind of questions here. Um, the first one I'm going to ask is what would you say? And if you can't think of it offhand, it's, it's no big deal, mm -hmm. but what would you say was your toughest moment as a speaker? Like what kind, did you have any situations that were just tough and how did you deal with that? Um, I don't think I've had any like quite, difficult moments as a speaker that I haven't been able to necessarily deal with. I guess the toughest would actually be when the crowd turned out to be mostly Spanish speaking. Um, I am a native English speaker and I took French for nine years. So that one was awkward. Thankfully, <laughs> I was with one of the counselors with John Madelman and we were sort of able to just slowly wing our way through it I think uh John still says that um, I work with him a lot because I do a lot of the evening talks because I'm uh, working during the day in the labs but um John still says that one of um my favorite his favorite comments that I've made ever was actually during that talk because I um not that I tend to take mental health lightly I try and lighten up my story uh my own sense of humor and my own uh, personality is just very sarcastic um and that definitely comes across when I'm speaking and at one point when I realized that clearly nothing I was saying was getting across that well um I made a comment and said tough crowd huh and everyone sort of understood like okay this was sort of a mistake and finally like we were all on the same page almost like they were the audience was giggling even John was I thought was gonna like have a heart attack he was laughing at me so hard because I think at that point we sort of were able to be like all right like let's shift gears let's have more words on a screen let's do that instead um but I don't really think I've had that many I, I think I'm lucky to not have had that many tough experiences um talking to students I think I've just been uh, also lucky uh, that the students I've talked to have all been, I mean, willing to listen and absolutely um, incredible. I usually will, especially um, depending on the circumstance, will give them the option and say some of what I talk about can be uncomfortable. If you're not comfortable and teachers, please, I usually ask them first if this is okay, but teachers, like, please don't. Um, feel like this is just an excuse for them to go on their phones like I still would prefer that they listen to me but if they feel uncomfortable they're allowed to pull out their phones if they don't want to listen to something that I'm saying and if they need a distraction from it if it's difficult for them they can go on their phones um, and usually I don't have that many people on their phones um, which I love and um, I think uh, I'm trying to figure out I guess maybe maybe the most powerful experience that I had um well, right, because that was I was actually my next question. I wanted to know what, like, literally, what was one of the most powerful or best experiences that you had as a speaker? So okay, I think there's um probably two. So 
One of them was when I actually talked to an elementary school. We don't usually do elementary schools, um, but there was a teacher in Long Island that is a friend of a friend that had requested that I come in to one of their assemblies. They actually have a student there um, that suffers from schizophrenia. Actually, I wouldn't say she suffers, to be quite honest. I would say she's rocking it. Like, she took control of her life and is doing very well. She was probably the most well-adjusted fifth grader I've ever met in my life. And I think she's smarter than me. But um, she organized this whole mental health week for the school because she wanted people to not only understand what she was going through, but to understand that they could be going through something similar and that you didn't have to have a mental health illness to have mental health. The fifth grader the organized fifth grader did with the help of the principal and teachers. <laughs> okay. And I it. was Just... amazed by this. They had all these activities and uh, I mean, and like they invited me to come in to speak uh, during this. And I was frankly terrified, but flattered because like, I don't know what you say to elementary school kids. So I kind of, instead of using words like depression and anxiety, used a lot more of descriptors and hearing some of these kids um, respond to what I was saying and say, like, I've come out, come up to me afterward and say, like, I felt like that, like, is that okay? Or, um, like, should I talk to my mom, like, when I feel um, too upset about my math, like, tests and stuff like that? And hearing some of them actually for the first time in their life probably reflect on the way that they were feeling in terms of, Maybe I should tell somebody how I'm feeling other than how's your day? Good. Um, was super powerful for me. And also meeting this fifth grader was super powerful for me. Um, and having also all these kids after I, I was um, honest, I didn't use the word suicide, but I did tell them about losing my friend. Um, and I sort of explained that like if you, I mean, not in a scare tactic way, I was a lot more subtle and gentle with it, but that cancer and all these other scary diseases that we've heard of that are left untreated mental illness can be the same way uh, oh wow okay that's that's a good way to relate still, to it that's really yeah yeah because i want i mean little kids these days know what that is now i mean most most people at this point know like a lot more than we give them credit for i think um but hearing a lot of them then come up to me afterwards and like hugging me and saying like i'm gonna talk to my friend I, I left and sat in my car and cried for like five minutes because I was just like, you are in second grade and you are already more emotionally intelligent than most people I've probably met in my life. Well, right. And what a powerful, I mean, that's such a cool thing you did for them. Cause it's like, all right, obviously any amount of time dealing with these types of things um, is not good, um, you know, but holy crap, if I was getting a hold of this stuff in second grade, because I heard a speaker like you, I mean, I mean, you know what? I wouldn't change anything because I love where I'm at right now. So that's a different it's hard thing. To say, but like... I, I mean, seriously, that's powerful, man. Like, you're who knows what you could have just done for that person's life. Um, so I think that was probably one of my more powerful experiences. And then another is I talked to um, an after-school group um, in a not super great area in Boston, and um, one of the teachers' aides came up to me beforehand and sort of pointed out like the more problematic students. Um, this was a middle school group of boys. And so I guess we can only imagine what middle school boys are like. Um, but <laughs> I vaguely remember. 
Um, and they're pointing out, you know, the more problematic, if, if this student raises his hand, maybe you tell him to wait until after, um, because it wasn't a huge group. It was about 15 or 20 kids at this after school program. And I was doing my talk again. I'm probably more um, easygoing version of what I usually do with high schoolers or adults. Um, just be not because I don't think they can understand just because my goal isn't to like use scare tactics. My goal is to just make people understand like what's, what can be happening and what can be going on with yourself, your friends, uh, other people in your school. And um, I was talking about anxiety and one of the little boys raised his hand and it was one of the ones that the aides pointed out as problematic. So I got a bit nervous, but I still was like, all right, yeah, um, what's up? And he's like, well, I had a math test the other day and I was really anxious about it. Um, and, um, is that, should I tell someone about that? Should I be talking about that? And I was like, well, when you left the exam, did you still feel nervous? And he was just like, no, I feel great. I think I did really well. And I was like, all right, well, I mean, that means it's normal anxiety um, versus disordered anxiety, where if you left the exam and you were still stressing about it even a week later, even after you got your grade back, that would be something that I would say, maybe talk to your mom about. He was like, okay. He's like, now, um, are you guys going to be afraid? And they were like, no, it's a big cat. And I was like, okay, but it's going to eat you. Are you afraid? And they're like, I'm terrified. And I'm like, now what if somebody, now if I tell you that somebody has a tiger in a cage, it's friendly, you can pet it. And they're like, no, that's fine. And they're like, um, and I was just kind of using that, I guess, as a metaphor for being like, if you're still afraid, even when that tiger's in a cage and you know it can't hurt you, like that math test can't do anything to you after you've taken it, um, that's the difference between anxiety and disordered anxiety and having, I guess my experience with having that one student raising his hand that was supposedly one of the more difficult students and was usually acting on class and him being like, should I talk to my mom was so incredible for me because it wasn't what I expected. I expected him to kind of go off the rails, make a joke, do something silly and yep, yep. having him like so focused on what I was saying without even the teacher's aide like who cringed when he raised his hand um having to intervene I mean I was just like overwhelmed I guess yeah and that's such a great point because hopefully somewhere out there there's um teachers parents or facilitators like listening to this episode and I share that all the time because um I was much different than you in the sense like I was I was a really, really good student when I was very young. And as this stuff kind of, you know, piled on, I started, you know, doing terrible in school. And, <clears throat> excuse, excuse me, I was that guy who was always acting out, doing stupid things, whatever. And so just like we talked about in the beginning, not everyone with perfectionistic tendencies has anxiety, but, you know, similarly, not everyone that acts out has these things going on. But a lot of the times we need to ask ourselves, like, you know, I, I asked the teachers, I'm like, what do you think, like, or do you think anyone wakes up and says, wow, I can't wait to do something stupid in class today to get negative attention. And when you put it like in a logical sense like that, you realize how illogical it is. And kids don't think like that, right? Like they're running off like more subconscious operations, kind of they're more habitual, whatever. And, um, or I shouldn't say habitual, but more impulsive. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so they're doing these things and you're like, you're not really thinking about it. Okay. Like what kid would want to be doing that and bring this negative attention to themselves? Obviously for one reason or another, mental health issues or not, they have something that they're lacking that they feel like they're getting from doing something like that. And it's amazing because I've talked to other speakers. I don't think it has anything to do with me or my story or necessarily you or your story. It's just the nature of what we're doing as a whole that we are able to disarm problematic kids and quote unquote problematic kids and get them to pay attention when no one else could. I've had that experience many times and I know a ton of my speakers have. So I think that says a lot about what we're doing, which is awesome. Um, I know we are wrapping up here. I promise these are actually, this is basically my actual last question. Um, I forgot to even ask you, what are you like doing now? I know we kind of mentioned it um, just throughout the story, but like, where, where are you at now in life? Like what's going on? What are some of your goals that you have? Oh yeah. Um, so I finished my master's degree, um, in 2018. And after that, I went into, um, drug discovery, uh, for doing research and development in oncology. So I've been doing that since, um, I absolutely love it. My coworkers are some of the best people I've ever met. Um, and they're also really supportive of everything that, like, I've gone through, like, physically and mentally. So, I mean, my job is very rewarding in itself, being able to work uh, with and meet some of the patients that have worked with uh, or used some of the medications that, I mean, maybe I didn't have anything to do with them, but ones that the company has put out. And I know there's um kind of a to steal a mental health word, there's kind of a stigma around working for large pharma, and I do work for a large pharma, um, but I mean, the the work that I do working in oncology and being able to actually see something going into um, a clinical trial and, like, people actually surviving when people didn't think they would is, um, I guess, a very rewarding aspect of what I've been able to do since graduating, so... I super love that. And then I also um, work on the Amazing Campaign still. We actually still run that at amazingcampaign.com. It's been a little bit lax just because um, myself and the other people that I run it with have all been far too busy in our lives. Actually, my fiance helps out with it a lot. We recently got engaged. So that's another exciting thing and partially why that has been a bit on the back burner um, along with work and everything else but um I mean yeah I guess my my life right now is not what I expected but when I if you asked me when I was 10 years old but I love it and I love that I have the opportunity to speak I wish I had gone through none of what I had gone through but I don't think I would change it I think it's made me who I am I think it's made me um I know that's so cliche but I think it's made me um more appreciative of what I have and more appreciative of the time that I have with certain people and, um, in my own life. Um, and it makes me, I think just really want to do a better job at work and in my life and work harder on what I'm passionate about. So I'm hoping that that is really what carries me through my next, you know, my next 24 years of life. And hopefully I will still be just as passionate about the things I am now today as I will be in those 24 years. Right. And what's cool about today's world, you know, is like 
we I feel like in today's world more than ever before, like we can have passions that last only 10 years and then we can go do something else because it's like so easy to switch things around um, with the internet and stuff like that. So I totally feel that because I'm just doing, you know, what I enjoy now. And if that switches, cool, we're, we're, we're going to go pursue that as well. Um, and you know what? I, I know it definitely can come across to the average person as cliche, um, but I think anyone that listened to this podcast in its entirety can totally get um, why you said that about your experiences. I mean, you are clearly a ridiculously um, tough and intelligent person and hardworking. So it, it's weird because maybe, yeah, we wouldn't have want to got those qualities um, in the way that we got them. But at the same time, yeah, it, it does shape us as people. And obviously, somehow, some way you have been able to um, overcome these types of things. I mean, you're the epitome of what I look for on this show. I want other people to hear these stories, not to look at someone else and say, oh, wow, they went through you know, something worse than me, quote unquote. So um, I need to do better. But it's more like just an inspiration to know that someone else is out there and, and gets it and, you know, is not perfect, but is, has lived this and has somehow um, been able to come out on the other side. I think that's inspiring um, for other people. And honestly, even as someone in this space, it's like totally cool and inspiring for me. Um, I, I'm sorry that you went through some of the things that you did, but I almost feel like I was at your presentation today because I went through like a kind of roller coaster thing, you know, like in the middle, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like crazy. And I'm like sad. And then at the end, I'm like motivated and kind of hyped up. And I was like, this is awesome. So um, I really appreciate um, you hopping on today. Uh, the If you have an answer for this, that's great, but we may have touched it. I always just give everyone a chance to say, is there anything you feel like you want to say that we missed or didn't cover um, anything at all? No, I think your questions are great. I think your prompts are great. And I'm really um, happy that you invited me on. I think this is awesome. Hey, everyone, Evan here again, just wanted to hop on because this is actually a recording that was done several months ago, but we had some technical difficulties. So it's finally just getting published now. Since that time of recording, Jenna has been able to turn the amazing campaign into a full out 501c3 nonprofit. So congratulations to them. They are doing awesome work over there. You can find them on Twitter or Instagram, Amazing Campaign, and their website is amazingcampaign.org. Thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of the Overcoming Mental Health Challenges podcast, and we will see you next week.